recorder. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word that you've given to us so we may learn, we may grow, we may challenge each other to believe and trust and grow in your grace. We live in very difficult times. Many people's faith is being shaken. But may we stand firm and we know and what we know will not be shaken, which is your promises and your kingdom. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're in Acts 18, starting with verse 5, and I'll go to that. Now, we're, we're gonna, I'm going back over some material we covered because it sets the stage for what's going to happen here next. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Yeah. All right, good. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We talked about this, but let me reiterate what we've already learned here. This does not mean that Paul never ever preached again to Jews. It doesn't mean that there's two Gospels, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. There's only one Gospel. It doesn't mean that because the rest of Acts makes that clear. It doesn't suggest that the Christian church is anti-Semitic. That's a horrible idea because God loves the Jews. God gave promises to Abraham, as Eric showed us, and God keeps his promises, and there's a future for uh, ethnic national Israel. We've taught that. I believe that for as long as I've been preaching. And so don't make false uh, implications from something that's not stated in the text. When it says your blood be on your own heads, I am clean, Paul's talking about his obligation as someone who spoke authoritatively for God to tell the truth in the terms of the gospel. So uh, back in uh, August 8, we, when I, we were teaching on this, the word devoted himself completely means wholly absorbed. Soon echo, which would be echo is to have or to hold, soon is together. So he held together his message and was wholly absorbed to teaching the word of God. Is there some better message that any preacher should be absorbed with? What is going to bring people the truth, hope, redemption, sanctification, anything but the pure word of God? And one of the strong debates and issues that's been going on for decades is whether the church is to be devoted to the word of God or to making people happy. And if the people have the opportunity to have the skills to understand the scripture, to interpret the scripture, uh, we need to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And 
Given that, if that happens, then the saints have tools to challenge the preacher when it needs to be done. And if we have a doctrine that if somebody challenges us, we can't think about it, we can't answer or maybe learn something we hadn't thought of, no preacher is infallible. The Word of God is infallible. The apostles preached the Word of God as part of the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. And so we need to be solemnly testifying to everyone, Jews and Gentiles, that this is the Christ, who, is, who he is, what he did, why we need him, what he expects of us. Blood guilt is a theme we talked about. You can see that in Ezekiel 33.4. And it's a very common theme in the Bible. In other words, if God sends someone to preach the truth, but they prefer a different message, they haven't discharged their duties. It's very serious. He shook out his garment and saying, all right, I, I'm clean. Why? Because I gave you the truth. So I don't want to spend too much time because we already did that, but let's look at 7 and 8 again, something we covered. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, probably a God-fearer, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. I mentioned this the last time I taught Sunday school. I firmly believe that in this era of history, in fact, any era, that we don't know who God's elect are, and we will not know until we preach the gospel clearly. And those who rejoice and believe, like is stated here, are going to be hungry to learn and to grow and to know the truth. Here's something that I think would be very hard for someone to refute. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said in John, when he says the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Now, what did Jesus say about himself? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we've taught, Eric and I, for a long time, that the point is this. The Holy Spirit is going to, if we teach the Word of God clearly and forthrightly and purely, those who love the truth because of a work of grace will respond, they will grow, they will be thankful. But if we teach how to be happy in this world, it's confusing. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help anybody. So if we want to know who is part of the church, we'll preach the truth wherever we go. Now, frankly, having been over the quite a few years invited here and there, there may be hundreds of people in a church and a handful will rejoice when they hear the truth. And that's not shocking. That's the way it goes. Let's go to verse 9. 
Now look at verse 9 of Acts 18. I'm just using the numeric standard, and we'll look at a few things that the Greek tells us about this, but Acts 18, 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now, looking this up in the Greek, literally, if you take uh, the grammar that, that I learned, and uh, anyone who learned Greek, when you have may uh, stop with an imperative, it, it means not fearing. In other words, stop it. Now, we might think, well, how could Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by him, sent by him, empowered by him, ever fear? Because he's a human being. Only Jesus Christ is sinless. Now, if you want to look, and I'm going to be preaching on this, I have a, it'd be faster for somebody to find it. I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 2, probably about verse 3. Someone looked that up. I, I have it here, but it'd be quicker for somebody else to find it. I've got too many notes here. I'll be preaching on this soon. While you do that, I want to show you something that helped me when I was younger and trying to find out what I ought to be preaching and what is important and why the culture is not going to help us find the truth. Yes, go ahead. Brian. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. Is yeah, is that correct? I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 2, 3. He's talking about the same event. This is the, he was in Corinth. He's going to Corinth. So the risen Lord. Now this, Paul uh, was commissioned a, a special event that God did. Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus uh, as he breathed out threats and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord. And so this is not just Paul had some ephemeral dream. I think maybe that's what it's about. This was an actual appearance of the Lord to him with real clear words that are meaningful. And there was this statement, and he confirms that in 1 Corinthians 2. So this, I said he's done so with clarity. I talked to a lot of prophets and, or so-called prophets and people who claim some mighty work of God, and they said, well, I had a dream, so well, what was it? Well, it's better felt than tilt. Some cloud or some feeling or some impression. So how do you, if that's what Paul had, which he didn't, by the way, how do you know it was from God? It was it clear, and did it confirm whether he had already been called to do? Preach the gospel. So this isn't what people nowadays talk about. This is clear. It's cognitive, clear, understandable. Yes, Brian. When God comes in a dream to Paul, would that be in the same category as a mishta so it's not him it's it's in a vision 
and, well, and, and people eventually will be uh, saved or not saved, but is that different categories? Well, the Mishnah happens when Paul goes and does what he's called to do. Paul knew this was the Lord. He was being encouraged to keep doing what he'd already been called to do. But once he does it, some people will try to kill him, and others will rejoice. And we published something on that, Dining with the King. Okay? And I think I mentioned this in a sermon recently. People are having these meetings, and they say, God's going to show up. God's going to show up. But in many cases, it would be very dangerous to them if he did. Because they don't have a concept of holiness of God. Just this morning, I'm looking through material that I've already learned from over the last so many decades, and I found this one, No Place for Truth, David Wells. That really, at the time, helped me. There's, so let me just quote David Wells from, I think, 19 early 1990s, anyhow. He's a theologian. And it's talking about the church. And so let me quote Wells. I think it'll help us today because we live in a world in crisis right now. Wells, No Place for Truth, page 183, David F. Wells. He says this, The self is a canvas too narrow, too cramped, to contain the largeness of Christian truth. Where the self circumscribes the significance of the Christian faith, good and evil are reduced to a sense of well-being or its absence, says Wells. God's place in the world is reduced to the domain of private consciousness. That's what I was just saying. This was not Paul's private consciousness. It was the real risen Lord speaking words meaningful to Paul that gave him courage to go on with the mission to which the Lord had already sent him. Do you think that uh, Paul was never discouraged? Yes, he was. We'll see that in Corinthians. Let me go on. This isn't private consciousness. It's God. His external, well says, his external acts of redemption are trimmed to fit the experience of personal salvation. His providence in the world, that's a doctrine we need to learn, providence in the world diminishes, says Wells, to whatever is necessary to ensure one's having a good day. Think about what's going on right now on the news, the weather, all around the world. Is anybody having a good day that's paying attention? I remember in the late 70s where hardly anybody had a good day. The 60s and 70s. Let's go on. Continuing with Wells, his word becomes intuition. Conviction fades into, I can't even, effervescent opinion. He's British in background, I think. It's not a word we tend to use, but I, uh, I think it means not concrete. Theology becomes therapy. And all the telltale symptoms of the therapeutic model of faith begin to surface. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness, holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about one's self. David Wells, No Place for Truth, uh, in the early 90s, whenever this was written. As you can see at the time, 
it really helped me be encouraged because go on speaking, do not be silent. You know, if you ask a preacher, please preach the gospel. Tell us about Christ. Tell us about who he is and what he did and why we need him and what he expects of us. And you get a blank stare. You know that the church isn't the church, it's a mission field. Yeah, we need to preach the gospel to churches. And there'll be some there, like there were in a synagogue, who will love the truth, be rejected by their friends, and hunger and thirst after what God has. This doesn't mean you join the new group. Whatever group David Wells is in, I don't know that I would join. But he told me the truth right here. Here's another thing. Parochialism is the enemy of the gospel. And parochialism rules and reigns in America, I'll tell you that. So you could say, well, I know I'm saved because I'm Presbyterian, because I'm Reformed, because I'm Lutheran, because I'm Assemblies of God, because I'm Charismatic, because I'm Baptist, because I'm Episcopal, and up and down the line you go. But the telltale thing that will reveal the heart is whether or not someone was willing to welcome the love of the truth when it's there. It says that in Thessalonians. They, they were deceived because they did not welcome decomai, used often in Luke Acts. No, that's in Thessalonians. For bringing someone or something to themselves. Uh, I think it was, who was the, uh, the guy that was up in the tree to see Jesus, the short? Yes. Yeah, he welcomed. He, he welcomed. So, so the risen Lord speaks to Paul, does so with clarity. So there's two imperatives in the Greek. Number one, do not fear. Number two, speak out. Wow. None of us are apostles, but we have their teachings. Are we afraid? Yes. I think the biggest stumbling block to the truth is the fear of man. The fear of man brings a snare. Probably remembering the King James there. If you fear man, it's so hard to tell the truth because they're not going to like you. On the other hand, brassy boldness doesn't make something true in its own right. The scripture does. Here's something that's essential. If you're born of God, you're born again by the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. If you are indwelt by the spirit, which every Christian is who is born of God, and not just a Christian name only, if the word of God is taught clearly and with purity, there's always something that will rejoice in us always will rejoice to hear the truth. Why? Because the spirit of truth is the very Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible. Why would you teach something else? And why not labor long and hard to find out what it means rather than what people want to hear? And so um, don't fear, speak out. And that's Paul and we confirm in 1 Corinthians 2 that that was very, very pertinent. 
He stayed there a year and a half. Verse 10 of Acts 18. Four, why not fear and why speak out? Well, in this case, for I'm with you, no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, what do we learn from that? There's some interesting things, and I'll uh, talk about this. It doesn't mean there's never a time to move on. Read all of Acts, or read Luke Acts, the two-volume work. Sometimes Paul got out. Didn't they lower him down in a basket? Uh, and so in this case, because the very risen Lord who commissioned Paul appeared to him and said, stay here. I have people in this city. Don't. I'm going to protect you. Stay here. Now, we can read on and we can see what happens. We don't always know where to go. And we can't claim the risen Lord spoke to us in the same way. But we do know the commission. And that's why we need a very strong and fully formed doctrine of providence. And that's what I think is lacking. But we have to get that right. And I've had people call me that I knew many years ago that are just shaking. Some have died because they just thought, I don't need anything. One guy, I went down to visit him in a really bad area that we knew. And he, his head had been punched in by a homeless guy right down by where I was a preacher for 25 years. And I went and visited him. I think a lot of people are naive to think America is the kingdom of God and everything's going to get better. And I'll, I'll make a further statement about that. If we start getting our eschatology from world events, it's probably incorrect. Providence contains good and evil. As I speak, there is a very serious hurricane heading right toward uh, Louisiana. I saw that this morning on the news. Uh, looking back, one time I was in the studio, right about the time it was a Katrina. So the person on the radio before me, and I heard what they were saying because it was as I wait in the waiting area, you got the sound, was saying, I feel like Jeremiah. I predicted this. And I, I thought, well, wait a second. I don't remember anybody saying that God was going to strike New Orleans because there were sinners than everybody else. But that's, he didn't say he predicted Katrina, but he said, God's judging them because look at all the sin. But what did Jesus say? Do you think these Galileans whose blood was mixed with their sacrifices are worse sinners than everybody else? That's what Jesus said. How does this guy know what Jesus says we cannot know? Jesus said we can't know these things. And what did Jesus say to those who were thinking like that? The bad people, all the bad things happen to them. The good people all the benefits happen to them. We like to think that way, but what did Jesus say? Does anybody remember? You got it. Unless you will, you repent, you'll all likewise perish. No one escapes judgment based on their own righteousness. And we cannot know ethics 
by watching world events. And I'll tell you, after a lot of years, people who believe that if they just speak positive words, nothing bad will happen. And they believe faith teachers who, the word of faith, nothing bad will happen. They get old, they get cancer, they die. They're like everybody else. Maybe they'll live to be 110 and be happy. It's very, very rare. It might happen. But the fact is, here's what I wrote down as I was thinking about this. Suffering and calamity are not distributed according to human merit. Do we, do we learn that from Job or not? We should. But a lot of people read Job and they get the wrong idea. They're like Job's comforters. I think I wrote an article called Job's Comforters Revisited. They're still out there. Oh, you're suffering. I'm sure glad I'm not. I'm righteous. What did Job's comforters say to him? Whoever suffered being righteous? Well, it's a trick question. No, there are none righteous. No, not one. Go ahead. Let me ask you a question, Bob. Yes. Uh, of um, fear of man versus fear of God. It seems like in today's world, society has put people in a predicament where if you don't fear man, then you're canceled, fired, so on and so forth. And I'll just use my workplace as an example. So I, I want to fear God more than man. Mm -hmm. But like if I talk about the Lord at work, then I run the chance of being disciplined. Whereas on the other hand, I have to pick and choose the times where I can get okay. people aside and, and talk to him kind of in secretive. And uh, it wasn't long ago where we didn't have that issue, where, where we could freely speak of God in, in the public square. Okay. But now as time goes on, you see that that is uh, a pushback by uh, the government and society okay, well, let, in general. Let me respond to that in two ways. There, there are real ethical dilemmas. Okay? They're, they're real. And so I don't know if it's a sign of righteousness that you keep getting fired by not doing your job because you spend all your time talking about religion. But on the other hand, we don't want to retreat. And so I think we need to be bold about what we believe, but still do our job. And uh, God will give us opportunities. When I was working at uh, down in town when I was in Bible college, my boss, who was really not, he was, he was a interesting character, I'll just say that. He called me into his office. He knew I was a Bible college student. And closed the door, and he said, I got to ask you a question. I know you're studying the Bible. Somebody like me, what would be the worst sin? What's a really bad sin? Now, he was a Catholic who went to uh, confession and stuff, and he talked about that. And he did his duty, but he hated it all. So he asked me. I think I mentioned this in the sermon. I said, I don't know how I came up with this answer, because he listed a whole bunch of sins, most of which he probably did regularly. I said, the worst sin for someone like you, and I said it this way, independence from God. You're doing it your own way, and you just 
don't really care what God says. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. Go back to work. <laughs> so I went back to work. Well, he asked me. But on the other hand, not doing our job because we'd rather be talking about our religious beliefs isn't right either. So there's opportunities that are good ones. Yes, go ahead, Norm. Um, as you're talking about, um, we can't know uh, what God is doing, like Katrina and different places, and try to say, well, that's God doing one thing or another. Trying to tie that together, what, what Eric is teaching in Proverbs about generally speaking, we know that if we try to obey God and live a righteous life, generally speaking, we're going to be a lot better off than if we're not. So we can make generalisms, but we can't be specific about individual events. Is that a true? Is that I would, a yeah, wisdom is always good. Yeah. Because we love God. And we can know how we ought to live and ask for grace to do so. But we can't assign blame to somebody else based on our views. Let me illustrate this. Today, in America, and we're not the center of the world, okay, but we're a significant nation, doubtless. But there are people who will assign blame for, back then the guy said, well, there were worse sinners in New Orleans. Well, now they're likely to say, this is what we get for burning hydrocarbons. Okay, so that just shows you why you can't get theology from nature. I've said that a lot. We could know wisdom. So we're going to say God is angry and he sent a hurricane. And one group says because we're burning hydrocarbons and carbon dioxide causes it. And the other group says, no, God is angry because the sinners in New Orleans are worse than the sinners in wherever we like, you know. Southern Illinois or wherever. How do we know that? Unless we're infallible prophets, we don't know that. Furthermore, we know that it's not a sin to burn because God commanded Noah to do so in the context of, of promising they'll never again destroy the earth through the flood and that there would be seed time and harvest during this era of history. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay, I still say it's wise to build on high ground. Interestingly, those who say we're wicked sinners because we burn things, and they got millions of dollars, they build right down by the sea. You know that? Go ahead. You know, one thing I've thought about in the years, and I gave a message on this some time ago, and maybe the one you're thinking of, Bob, was that we as Christians have to be content with the wrath to come. Oftentimes we have the tendency of wanting to put people under wrath here and now. But go back to uh, in the book of Matthew. Remember... John the Baptist says, who told you, brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath to come? To come. Um, you remember Paul says in Romans 5 that they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. I'm sorry, that's uh, Romans 2.5. And so what's interesting is the wrath is always placed in the future day of the Lord. But what happens is once we see the day of the Lord is something that's here and now, we as Christians start placing people under the wrath. They must have been more evil than that person. Therefore, the tornado came and hit them. 
But we can't do that, as Bob has been saying. It's not been revealed to us. What has been revealed is that there's a day that's coming when the Lord Jesus will come from heaven. And that's when the wrath comes, but also our salvation. And so we, are, we have to be content with warning people about the wrath to come. Amen. That's something we have to learn to be content with. And that's part of the gospel. Amen. Amen. And that's what is lacking. That's what David Wells was pointing out. It's just shocking to me, but that's not there anymore. And when I've asked people that have really huge churches to preach that way, somebody heard uh, later, well, I don't have to be a prosecuting attorney. No, you're not. God's the prosecutor, but you got to tell them the terms. They don't want to. Why? Because it might offend somebody. Now, we can offend people because we're just not very nice, and I'm pretty good at not being very nice. God gave me a wife who is very nice. But the fact is that the truth is not going to be acceptable, and we can't dress it up to make it sound good to those who hate God. Is that right? And some have called me. We're getting calls from people we haven't seen for years. Shaking. What's going on? What, What happened? Who can help me? And if you don't learn the truth over 30 years... You're not going to get more stable. Someone, I just printed out Hebrews. This is a homework if you want to jot it down. So I want to stay on topic here, but Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. I printed it out in four different translations. I didn't have time to dig into every bit of uh, Greek here. But verse 28 says, I'm going to cite the net. Since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us give thanks. And through this, let us offer worship pleasing to God in devotion and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I read two verses. Hebrews 12, 28, 29. Turn on the news this morning. It is just getting worse. It's worse. There were people on there saying, my my uh, uh, friends, my relatives, they're in Afghanistan. They went there to serve. They can't get out. This, uh, we're, you know, uh, the Middle East is an honor shame. Did you know that? They're an honor shame. America tends to look at success and failure. Well, in this case, failure and shame, and it all goes together. But if you're part of the Middle East culture, and honor is the ultimate thing, no matter what you think. If you gave, gain honor by uh, pillaging, and you do so, at least in your group, you're honorable. The one being pillaged or leaving is dishonored. And so that's kind of what's going on. I'm not saying I know what's going to happen, other than at some point, judgment's coming, and we don't know when. Let me ask a question. Why is the church age still going on right now? Rich. It's because uh, God is looking for the full number of people to come into his camp. He is, it, it, time is going on generations and generations. He's looking for more people. I mean, he's bringing more people, not looking for more people. Yeah, there's still more people to come who will in. escape the coming wrath. Good answer. Do you drink coffee? All right, you already got it. Very good reading. Now let's look at that in very good segue. 
unplanned, but here it is. I'm going to go back a bit into Acts 13:48. This is not on your outline. I added it after I sent my slide to Christy. But this is a review. Now, why was Paul to stay in Corinth? Because the Lord told him, I have many people here. Did the Lord tell Paul the name so he could just go to them? No, he didn't know. He just preached to everybody. So now look at uh, Acts 13.48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. I've covered this before. So when Paul later was told by the Lord, I have many people in this city, earlier Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said as many as been appointed to eternal life believe. Who are those people? We don't know yet until they believe and persevere by confessing Christ and loving the truth. The term appointed, tasso, used eight times in the New Testament. Five are in Luke Acts. So that was from June 9, 2019. I taught on this. And so here it means they're appointed by God. Now let's give it, show you, if you want to turn to Romans 13, 1, I'll show you another use of this in a similar context. Appointed. And this is Romans 13, 1. Give you time. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except by God, and those that exist are put in place, there's our word, set in order, put in place, appointed by God. Now, when Paul said that, and I know Eric taught on this when he taught through Romans, and I know I have at some point, does that mean authorities are all good ones? Are the authorities all wanting to be nice to us? No. Um, Are they fallen, wicked leaders of one stripe or another? Occasionally somebody who very much would like Christianity to go forward. There's a lot of different kind of leaders. This is the problem. This is what we're getting feedback on a series on spiritual warfare. There are so many Christians who believe the bad ones were appointed by Satan. The good ones were appointed by God. And if we get into the heavenlies and deal with the spirits and all of these things and bind them and do all this stuff, then just the good ones that God wants will come. Now, can you derive that from Romans 13.1? I, I can't. It would take some pretty clever reading. Now, Eric, do you remember when you taught through Romans 13, 1? What, what implications did you see from that? You know, one of the... Go ahead and turn it on. I forgot all about the microphone. Um, I, I, what I thought of is that back in Daniel 2, God appoints rulers. The, the divisions he, that Daniel had? Exactly. He raises them up and he brings them down. And one of them is Nebuchadnezzar, who ends up coming against the Israelites and bringing them into captivity. And so it's really a falsehood to say that 
God isn't providentially in control of all rulers, like you're pointing right. out. And um, I've never thought of that, Bob. You have people who are trying to say, well, this, say, this ruler must be from Satan, this one from God. But the scriptures reveal that he raises them all up for his purpose. Why, now, during this age, Eric, and I know you've taught a lot about this, yeah. the church age, until we get to the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, yeah. providence always includes everything, right? Amen. And we're That's here right. to preach the gospel. That's right. Now, I believe, now, though I know we have plenty to complain about, but isn't it true that it would be wor- it'll be worse in the future, Antichrist and all that will be more directly satanic? Absolutely. So in Deuteronomy 32, we know in Acts 17 and Deuteronomy 32 that God has ordained many borders, many nations. And the idea is to restrain evil. If one nation gets too powerful, right. the others pound it back into submission. You've talked a lot about this in Sunday right. school. That The problem is in the 70th week of Daniel, the day of the Lord, you're going to end up having one government. And in some sense, that's the dream of humanity. Usurp God's role, come up with our own government. And so that's what Christ is going to have to throw down. But that's what brings hell to earth. And so this idea of having a one-world order, a one-world government is going to lead to destruction. And that's the dream of the lawless ones. Amen. That's right. Get rid of national borders. Get rid of everything. Now, we need to be circumspect about what we believe and what God's purpose is. If the church age, and I believe this is biblical, if we're here now in the world we live in, then we know we need to preach Christ, preach the truth. God will distribute his preachers on the scene of history providentially so that there's a witness all over. And people will hear the gospel. Norm, over here. Going on to verse 2 in Romans 13, 1. This is one I have struggled with the last couple of years where it says, you know, in one, God has appointed all rulers or so forth. And then in verse 2, it says, therefore, who resists the authority as opposed the ordinance of God? When do we have the authority, or when is it okay to not, not be following the authorities that God has put in place? Okay, well, one thing we know from what happened in Acts is that when they were commanded to not preach Christ and the gospel, they would say, especially by Jewish authorities, whether we should obey God or the man, you judge. Yeah. And so, in history, when civil authorities take over the church, which is disastrous, or command people to not preach the gospel, we're going to preach the gospel. Yep. Sometimes we'll stay there, different people, and sometimes there'll be an escape. God's in charge of providence. Now, every time... I think about this, it's been so many decades now. I've been in Luke X. If you read the whole thing, it's a two-volume work. Sometimes it was time to escape. We're going to talk about that. Sometimes it's time to stay. If we're not sure, one thing we know we must do, preach the gospel. Right. And I'm convinced that even not very good leadership is better 
than being in the tribulation under Antichrist. The church age. Yeah. Now, the Divine Council worldview helps us because why did they want to build the Tower of Babel? Remember the answer to that? They're going to reach up to the heavens. They're going to contact the gods. God judged the whole world through the flood because of that same thing. And now they want to redo it. And God thwarted their language, established the table of nations, established human leadership, and left that way of governing in place providentially so they couldn't do what they wanted to do. Uh, Eric, is that how you understand that? Yeah, absolutely. Well said, Bob. Um, one of the principles I, I gave, one of my first messages I ever gave at this church was out of Romans 13, 1 through 4. And I came up with a saying that may be helpful, and that is we are to obey the governing authorities unless they command us to do something God forbids or they forbid us from doing something God commands. In some examples Bob just mentioned in Acts 5, that they had to say we have to obey God rather than men because they were being forbidden from doing something God commands, namely preach the gospel. Think of Daniel. Daniel was going to pray. They forbid it. In fact, they commanded him to pray only to pagan gods. Daniel right away disobeyed because he obeyed God rather than men. Uh, Think about the Hebrew midwives. The Hebrew midwives are commanded to murder the baby Hebrew boys as they come out of the chute. What do they say? They, They actually lied. Pua and Shua, if I remember the names right, their names are actually recorded. And so they go against an evil command. And so again, um, that's one of the difficulties is we sometimes are at odds with the culture and sometimes we're even put to death because we don't do always what the rulers demand. But what Bob is pointing out is even with evil rulers, for example, take Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler still in his police force, as evil as he was, did they did evil. There's no question. But how much worse is it when there's no police force at all? Then you have all sinners acting out to the worst of their sinful inclinations, and there's no restraint. So even in a very pagan society like Nero, you have the trains running on time, like in Hitler's Germany, or in Nero's reign, you have some restraint of evil, without which you would just have sinners running amok, murdering, and etc. So I notice we're doing podcasts, and we have to get back to that. The next section we're going to do is called Nero Theology. And what happens is if Christians end up being blamed for everything that goes wrong. Because if if we make claims that aren't right, then they're going to say, it's a Christian's fault. We hear that right now. Christians are saying, it's not a sin to drive your car. You think that would be very easy to accept. It isn't. Someone was saying to me, it's the global, it's all, it's, we got to, we can't be here. We can't be doing this. I said, you're not going to change the globe by driving your car to work. Well, we're going to have to disagree. But you still drive your car to work. You just feel guilty. And so, frankly, the social gospel wants to make sure we feel guilty about things that aren't actually sin. Honestly. Someone else wanted to debate me about this. I said, okay. So I live in a northern climate. I drive my car to work, and I eat my house. Does that make me a wicked sinner? Okay, so 
is original sin the production of carbon dioxide? Is that the new original sin? Because what those who reject the gospel do is create sin, but it's just being ordinary humans. That's their sin. And how do you get delivered from that sin? Well, you believe Marxism or emergent or everything's evolving into heaven. We need binding and loosing based on scripture, but what's forbidden and what's permitted. And then from there, we use wisdom about how we live within what's permitted. That's, that's the issue. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. Um, <clears throat> but more specifically, the thing that I, I personally have struggled with when it talks about the government and making uh, rules that we are to obey, and I'll just be specific, this thing about wearing a mask. I really don't think they do much good. But if the government says you need to do that, they're not preventing us from preaching the gospel or even attending church. They just say you have to wear the mask. Do I have the authority as a, to just say, I'll disregard what you say because I don't like it? Well, I would just say this. I've been around long enough to know that when Christians tell other Christians what sort of health care they're allowed to get or not get, it does just as much damage as when the government does it. I was in a group that thought, well, God's going to take care of us. I remember, this is shameful, but I was there. I was in this group when I was in a charismatic down in Martinsville, Indiana. And someone had serious cancer and I think the medical thing was botched. But a person got up and said this. Thus saith the Lord, this, this is not unto death. In the name of God, this disease is not unto death. Before several hundred people, this lady, his husband, and children. So God spoke, this isn't unto death. She dies a month or two later. People don't know where to go or what to do. And so I don't like it when Christians say, if you go to a doctor, that's a sign of unbelief. And somebody else says, if you go to a doctor with a mask on, then you're controlled by men. I don't think we should tell other, each other how we go to the doctor, if we go to the doctor, and under what context. So I readily admit, I went to the doctor with a mask on because that's what they asked me to do. But I'm not a Muslim. Go ahead. It's similar to the uh, to the old uh, seatbelt laws, and and uh, there was a lot of pushback when they wanted us to wear a seatbelt. But the bottom line is, if you don't wear a seatbelt, you're going to get the ticket anyway. So, uh, I know some people that won't do it to this day. But Diane's dad got seat when they weren't seatbelts. He thought they were a good idea. He went and got seatbelts from down at the airport and installed them himself. So, yes, uh, over here. I came across this picture, and I saved it to my phone. It says, um, the people who hid Anne Frank were breaking the law. The people who killed Anne Frank were following the law. 
The law is not a moral compass unless it is the law of God, which is above the laws of mortals. Okay, that's exactly right. Now, remember what Eric said? What happens when one nation oversteps its bounds? How does God deal with that in his providence? Other nations move in and say, no, you're not going to do this. So what happened to Hitler? He was defeated, and now we have national boundaries again. But providence has to be, we really have to learn providence. Some, whoever wants to study, go look at theology, study the doctrine of providence. And then as we make decisions that are very difficult, we're not perfectionists. I, one of my teachers said, there are no moral dilemmas. Just do the right thing and God will do a miracle. But there are moral dilemmas. But the greater good is determined by the Bible. In that case, the greater good was to save lives, yes. Yeah, I, uh, on Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, uh, last year when uh, Pastor James Coates up in Canada, uh, I listened to several of his sermons, you know, he was put in prison because he kept his church open. Now, he made the point that what it says is we are to be in subjection. That means that they they have control over us. But he, he made a distinction that doesn't mean we obey, but it means that if we disobey, we're going to take the consequences, and that's what he did. For example, the, the Canadian government put a fence around his church so that no one could attend his church, and there were people that came in from another province and tore down that fence, and James Coates's, uh the people in his congregation, they prevented that. They, they rebuilt the fence. They said, we're going to be in subjection to the civil authorities even if we disobey, because he also made the point, and I'm going to butcher up the Greek here, exosia, I think is the word, and that was the word for authority and jurisdiction. So what his point was is that, is that the civil authorities within their jurisdiction, we are to be in subjection of them, uh, subjection to them, but when, we, when, when the civil authorities direct us to do something that's contrary to God's word, like meeting in church as we speak, as we decide. But his point was, and I thought it was a good one, is that the civil authorities do not tell us the conditions in which we meet. That is, that's the conditions that, that God ordained. We will gather, we will gather the way we deem to be appropriate. Um, and, and that. So I thought it was, we've had some interesting and difficult ethical dilemmas with all of this. Well, we know we need to gather. Yeah. And I don't know enough about that situation to make some sort of a uh, Talmud about how and when. Because if you read through Acts, there's a lot of different things happen. Paul stayed here and preached with it, even though it was fear and much trembling. But in other cases, he got out. Yeah. And then he, do, he wanted to go to Jerusalem. Now, some people have written and said, well, Agabus was an authoritative prophet, and Paul was sinning by going to Jerusalem, where he got arrested. Here's what we need to know. I don't want to say whether, I don't know what that pastor actually preaches. I've never read his material. But if he's preaching the gospel, then he can do it how he sees fit and be willing to take the consequences. But to go underground isn't a sin either, because some have. Some do in China. 
I got an email saying some do in Afghanistan. They're underground and they're meeting. Now, would it be better to come out and say, okay, Taliban, kill us, we're Christians? It's not as simple as we might think. Furthermore, we know what's true. We must preach Christ. Frankly, there are churches up and down buildings, I mean, buildings aren't churches, by the way, that are echoing everything the world ever said. Okay? And uh, the salt is worthless. So I know we must preach Christ. Here's another assignment. Now, one assignment was Hebrews, right? Hebrews um, 12, 25 to 29. Read it. Come back. We'll talk about it. Secondly, one more assignment. Read Romans 8, verses 27 to the entire end of the chapter. All right? I've, told, I've given that assignment to some people called me, asked me what to do. Why is this happening? Why am I... Why am I like this? Why did all this go on? Read it. Furthermore, look at it here. Appointed as a divine passive by God. If someone goes underground and preaches that way, are, is that proof that they're under Antichrist? No. If someone chooses to defy, that's their business. If Christ is preached, we can rejoice in it. But I don't like to tell people how they have to do it. I, I'm not the, I'm not the lawgiver. Only God is. There are real ethical dilemmas. If you think there aren't any, you don't understand. Rahab was that the one who lied? She's commended by God. So the, go ahead, sir. Yeah, just to end this story, though, what's kind of interesting is that uh, Pastor Coates was put in prison, and he preached Christ to all kinds of people. And I heard that, I think they applauded when he was released finally. A bunch of these prisoners, they loved the guy. He, and right. he, he really, it was God's providence. This is what we're talking about, God's providence. Yeah. So you let's have to remember that. I totally agree. In fact, Paul said in Philippians, my circumstances, he was in jail, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Providence covers everything. So let's pray that God will help all of us understand providence, understand the church age, understand our role, understand the gospel, and then see how that applies to our own lives. Does that make sense? Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, and for our opportunity to freely gather and look at your word and proclaim it with boldness. And Lord, we need to be free from the fear of man. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Very good, solid discussion.